Hello and welcome to the Age of Victoria podcast. My name's Chris Fernandez-Packham. Let's get on with the show. A few bits before we get going today. Firstly, if you're new to the show, the Age of Victoria is a narrative history show, but it does have mini-sodes that cover other topics. So if this is the first time you've listened and you're feeling a bit lost where to start, well, every main show is called an episode and it covers the chronological narrative I've set up for the Victorians. And then there are mini-sodes that cover various other topics as and when I find them interesting and listeners want them. So if you're not sure where to start and you just want to stick to the main narrative at the start, just listen to the episodes and skip the mini-sodes, then come back to them later. Okay, I also want to say a thank you to the show's patrons, the Ho-Ho Toffs, Michelle Gersick, Michelle Packham, Rob Coughlin, Steve Doc Pinko Cloutier, our respectable governesses, Jeffrey Rubinoff and Sean Warswick, host of the American History Podcast, Erpso, Amy Coldwell, and they are joined by new respectable governess, Daniel Nikos. I hope I got your name right there. And of course, our lovable chimney sweeps, Joseph Kupperman, JB Unicorn, and Ephemeral von Hinterland. Thank you all for your support. As a little thank you, I've put an exclusive patrons episode on Patreon about an unexpected adventure. I hope you enjoy it. If anyone wants to listen to that show, well, head on over to Patreon and sign up and support the Age of Victoria. Now, last time in our main episode, we did an overview of the British constitution and political system. Today, we're going to touch on the definitions of Tories and Whigs, and then have a more detailed look at the Tories in particular. Neither the Tories nor the Whigs sit quite as easily on the left-white political spectrum that we have today. When looking at the past, it is vital to understand that we have a lot of modern political baggage that stops us really understanding the political landscape of the past. Also, like any political fractions, the views and circumstances of the individual members varied. Don't think of them as formal political parties in the way we have today. They weren't, although they were political parties. They were more formal affiliations of MPs joined in a looser structure. They voted in accordance with general themes and were often dependent on the patronage of powerful people, ministers, aristocrats or the crown. People in the general population would often describe themselves as aligning with Tory or Whig views. Once an MP had got into bed with his faction, it was hard to break out. Like joining the Mafia, you were given a favour by your patrons. One day, and that day would come, they would ask you for favours in return. Until then, you got the immense power of being an MP. This power was much greater than today. A modern MP is mostly a glorified middle manager who has PR duties and replies to letters complaining about the trains 
and bin collections. Being an MP in the 19th century meant exercising immense power as part of an oligarchy. The opportunities for corruption and graft were immense, especially when the railway manias were in flight. MPs nodded through railway bills in committees for friendly MPs, who in return would return the favour. No questions asked. Land values could be pumped up or wiped out. Enemies could find a new railway being driven through their prime real estate. Bills, Acts of Parliament, supportive or probing questions to a minister, could bury or uncover a scandal. And, of course, there were always lucrative appointments for friends, plus being able to exercise patronage of your own. Of course, MPs came to the table with views of their own, and people they supported, with favours of their own to call in from people who they had granted favours for in the past. No one twisted their arm to become an MP. Local electors were canvassed, with potential MPs being selected for having the right views. And by right views, what we really mean is in accordance with the landowners who actually run the elections. It was corrupt in the extreme, but most people didn't want a moron for an MP. That got them nowhere. Some MPs went off the rails, though, and attacked their patrons in Parliament. Lord Cochrane, a decorated naval hero, got himself elected on a reform platform, although he bribed his way into the seat, showing massive hypocrisy. He criticised the Admiralty about their fraud and corruption so much he was labelled a radical. That meant other MPs felt he had gone beyond the normal bounds of civilised party debate. It left him as a free-floating MP. His enemies in Parliament eventually took revenge expelling him for serious fraud instead of protecting him as one of their own. The Tories are in a way the easiest faction to define. They broadly believed in the crown, the old systems that were created from the glorious revolution of 1688, representative government by aristocrats on the basis of privilege. They mostly opposed reform. Some opposed reform on the basis that changes to systems had to be organic and that to tinker time-tested institutions risked breaking the best system of government in the world unless change was gradual and limited. Often, they were parliamentarian fanatics, people who thought Cromwell and the Glorious Revolution had created the perfect system of parliamentary government. Other Tories, especially the high Tory factions, opposed any change on principle. They viewed even suggestions for reform, as bordering on treason. A lot of the God and Crown types would be included in this camp. There were usually leanings towards a blend of free trade when it made them rich, but protectionism in areas like farming. As often they had connections to land wealth, this was rather self-serving. A strong theme that ran through most Toryism was support of the Anglican Church linked to the ideas of the church and crown as one indivisible entity. This was vital to the Tory worldview, since many believed in something close to the divine right of kings, 
and therefore the Anglican Church, being headed by the king, was the spiritual arm of God's government, whilst the king was the temporal one. This made the two absolutely indivisible for many Tories. Understanding this is really vital for understanding the worldview of the Tory establishment at the end of the Georgian era and the beginning of the Victorian one. The idea of the separation of church and state in this worldview is actually oxymoronic. You can't have the state without the king and church. It also meant that if the king and church were indivisible, then the church had to be Protestant, and furthermore, so did the king. That puts a huge barrier to reform in place straight away. The church was immensely powerful. It wasn't as powerful as it was in the High Middle Ages or Renaissance, but it was powerful in a way that's hard to grasp today. We will come back to the church in more detail in a later show, since Victorian families, Victorian customs, and even how the Victorians viewed their bodies in life and death were heavily influenced by the church. Once you get your head around this symbiotic relationship, some of the decisions the British establishment make begin to make sense. The biggest one is the problem how to deal with Catholics and nonconformists. A Protestant church can't admit Catholics into its power structures or official positions. For Catholics, the head of the church had to be the Pope. A king couldn't be head of a church by definition. For Protestants, a Pope can't be head of a church by definition. The head of the church is the one who gets to appoint the bishops and archbishops. They in turn do huge incomes, influence huge numbers of people, and had seats in the House of Lords. Protestants often didn't really see Catholics as loyal citizens, rather as potential traitors who were always secretly plotting to overthrow society and establish a theocracy led by the Catholic Church. I know a lot of listeners will be thinking, well that's utter nonsense. But bear in mind, this is a fairly common human reaction to minority groups in any societies. Think how some people in the modern West have reacted to Islam post 9-11, how the labels libertad or incel get thrown around casually, or how the Chinese react to Christians or Ughurs in China, or the ongoing conflict between Sunni and Shia Muslims, and the views of both those sects about the Ahmadi Muslim community. Humans are endlessly complex, inconsistent and tribal, often preferring to dehumanise and label people with different worldviews, usually ascribing an evil to them. As the English monarchy maintained a strong Protestant position, there was a huge problem for Catholics, since they were barred from a lot of offices, including Parliament, and they demanded emancipation. That was a cause that was inextricably linked to reform in Ireland, where the bulk of the Catholic population were heavily discriminated against. Since the church, state and fear of revolution were so closely linked in the Tory mind, then they viewed Catholic emancipation 
as linked to revolution and anarchy. At the very least, it meant giving control of the veto of legislation to the Pope if Catholic archbishops were admitted to the House of Lords. This doesn't mean all Tories were aristocrats. A lot of constitutional purists, lawyers, soldiers and others would identify as safe, middle-of-the-road Tories. Also, party politics wasn't quite as strong as today. Patronage and royal power had been much more significant up to 1815, but gradually people increasingly aligned themselves with political parties, rather than just considering being a Tory or a Whig a statement of a political position. Still, the problem that was on everyone's mind was Catholic emancipation, and it was given incredible urgency by what was called the Irish problem. The British government had to accept it was ruling Catholic Ireland, not just Protestant Ireland. A third of the British army was made up of mostly Irish Catholics, mainly serving in the ranks. Leave aside the moral considerations of equal rights, freedom from oppression, and religious freedom then, and focus on it from a real politique view. The government had to find a way to placate the one-third of its army whom it relied on to maintain power. A mutiny of a third of the army, if some kind of Catholic emancipation wasn't delivered, would be catastrophic. But giving the Catholics emancipation would fundamentally undermine the very philosophy of the state itself. Other reformers were convinced only emancipation would bring Ireland economic prosperity. MP Joseph Hume predicted that, quote, the country would become tranquil, capital would flow in, and permanent employment would be afforded to the people at home, end quote. Catholic emancipation, like the Great Reform Act and the Corn Laws, would be a subject of bitter contention. Lord Liverpool, who we met in our Peterloo episode, was absolutely against reform. He was a Tory Prime Minister from 1812 to 1827, an astonishing period. He saw plots everywhere. In fairness, there was a conspiracy to assassinate the whole government cabinet, including him. It was called the Cato Street Conspiracy. It was uncovered by Home Office spies, the ringleaders were arrested and executed or transported. Lord Liverpool and the establishment viewed any reform as potentially unleashing a French-style revolution complete with a reign of terror and Madame Guillotine. Lord Liverpool had been instrumental in events around the Peterloo Massacre. Most of the other senior Tories were highly reactionary. Lord Eldon was Lord Chancellor for 20 years, a self-made barrister, ultra-judicially conservative, and a long-time member of the government. He was in his 70s by the time he stopped being Lord Chancellor. Since the Lord Chancellor was the head of the judiciary, it was an immensely powerful position. Curiously, he was not actually an aristocrat with a long history of nobility. His father was a coal merchant in Newcastle-upon-Tyne. He got a good inheritance 
and went into law. He turned out to have significant talents and began making serious money. He leveraged this into political power. He was talented at politics as well as law, climbing the ladder, prosecuting government opponents, supporting the Prince Regent and becoming a government minister in 1801. He would cling on in government till 1827. That's an interesting piece of psychology right there. Son of an everyday working man, made good, becomes one of the ruling class and becomes an ultra-conservative. This was the period known as old corruption, a period of parliamentary corruption and dogma, unmatched until 2016. High Tories, like Lord Eldon, bitterly opposed reform. Eldon blocked legal reform as doggedly as he blocked political reform. It is possible that he was one of the inspirations for Dickens' savage lampooning of the slow legal process in the novel Bleak House. Yet, despite their colossal social conservatism, the Tory governments of 1815 to 1830 did embrace some enormous changes. They began a pivot of Britain towards economic liberalism and laissez-faire capitalism. These moves were really important. Britain would focus on industry and economic performance, and the wealthy industrialists at this stage were more likely to lean to the Tories, and the Tories more likely to help their interests than later in the Victorian period. This was in many ways bad for the poor, since it aligned the newly rich business owners with the ruling aristocracy, but it did have benefits. Economic and foreign policy could be aligned, and this all began to shift around the time of George IV's coronation, and continued through Victoria's childhood. Parliament saw a shift away from the ultra-Tory ministry that had held sway since 1812, Our old friend, Lord Castlereagh, from the Congress of Vienna episodes, committed suicide in 1822. For all his achievements, he had been a divisive figure. He had grown depressed and desperately paranoid. The Duke of Wellington and George IV were both upset at his deterioration. His wife tried to support him, but one morning, after they argued, she went to fetch a doctor and he used the opportunity to ram a hidden knife into his carotid artery. Many were shocked and mourned him. Lord Byron spoke for many others when he wrote a little ditty over Castlereagh's grave. Quote, quote, Posterity will ne'er survey a nobler grave than this. Here lies the bones of Castlereagh. Stop, traveller and piss. End quote. Ouch. Byron really knew how to burn someone. Still, an older generation was passing. Castlereagh was replaced by the infamous George Canning, his bitter enemy, ironically, whom he had shot in the thigh in a duel. The Duke of Wellington had entered Parliament as Master of the Ordnance in 1819, and Robert Peel soon became Home Secretary. Politically, Britain's foreign policy stance could begin to shift even further now that the ultra-Tories were fewer and further between. Canning, 
carefully pivoted Britain away from the more absolutist concerts of Europe Castlereagh had favoured and towards a more liberal and nationalistic stance. The Duke of Wellington led the delegation to the Congress of Verona in 1822 and refused to support attempts to reimpose royal absolutism in Spain. The logical response was for Canning to recognise Latin American independence movements from Spain. He also managed to tread a fine line over the Greek War for Independence, despite the enthusiasm for military involvement by many British people. Indeed, Lord Byron got himself killed in the struggle, although through disease rather than a more romantic death in battle. And it is worth remembering that in the background of all this were rumbling wars of empire and colonial expansion. Canning created a reformist clique within Tory party itself, which was splitting internally between the ultras and the Canningite reformers. King George IV continued to fail to set a direction for the nation to deal with the need for reform. The king was perfectly entitled to set the tone and direction for his ministry, provided he didn't attempt to usurp Parliament's authority. He could wield immense power through the gifting of titles, political offices and favours. He could dissolve Parliament or set the conditions for government. But George IV was seriously conservative by nature anyway. Economically, the Tory party had to respond to the changing economy. Whether they cared about the poor or not, whether they considered poverty a virtue or not, as I mentioned in the previous episode, the sheer scale economic shockwave going through Britain required new responses. According to Professor Rubenstein in Britain's Century, quote, In the early 1820s, however, all of the indices of economic output turned sharply upward, with, for instance, raw cotton consumption for textiles increasing from £109 million in 1819 to £167 million in 1825. As well, prices declined significantly during the years after Waterloo, decreasing by about 29% in the 11 years between 1815 and 1826. During the 1820s, Britain was moving decisively into the urban, factory, steam-powered phase of industrialisation, with Manchester's population growing from about 96,000 in 1811 to 135,000 in 1821 to 194,000 in 1831. End quote. The problem was, as we know from the Peter Lou episode and many others, the government wasn't interested in making sure the proceeds of this growth were shared evenly, or frankly even shared much at all. Instead, the Tories were moving from an old-style protectionist or mercantile model to one of unregulated capitalism and non-intervention. It was great for industry in the abstract, for many Tory property owners and business owners, and the bulk of the population, it simply meant things they really didn't need got cheaper, and things they needed desperately, like food or rent, remained expensive. 
with humiliating, crushing pressure on top to conform to their social status and highly limited representation or political voices to push back. There was a push towards deregularization as well. Perhaps one of the biggest bombshells that would kickstart some incredible changes in the Victorian era was actually the decision of William Hutchkisson to reform the Navigation Acts in 1823. If you have an interest in the US Revolutionary War, the Navigation Acts might be familiar to you. Hutchkisson was president of the Board of Trade in 1823, and he decided to abolish some long-standing issues with the Acts. Critically, he would allow colonies to trade directly with other nations without having to use British ships going via Britain. Colonies were no longer locked down only to Britain. His speech to Parliament on the Navigation Acts in 1826 showed a sophisticated understanding of international affairs and the impact of the growth of the United States. But it was the free trade that was a huge change. Open trade would be critical in allowing the fledgling colonies, Australia, New Zealand and Tasmania, to establish themselves, as it removed from them the burden of having to get things shipped via Britain, made a powerful statement of the UK's focus on free trade. Now, British merchants could work directly between the various colonies. The whole world was changed immensely as a result, and William Hutchkisson probably deserves to be better known for the changes rather than his unfortunate death, which will come up in a future episode soon. High Tories, like the Duke of Wellington, were in a difficult position domestically. Wellington was an arch-conservative. He was an Irish Protestant and didn't particularly consider himself Irish. When it was once remarked that he being born in Ireland, so was Irish, he replied, A man may be born in a stable, but that doesn't make him a horse. But I'll just warn you, that story might have been made up by Daniel O'Connell. There was an enormous gulf between the ruling Anglo-Irish Protestant class in Ireland and the bulk of the Catholic population. Still, Wellington wasn't stupid. He might have been many things, but he was a very clever man. He was well aware of the makeup of the army and the fundamental problem. He knew full well the Catholic population included some incredibly clever people. It wasn't that he liked the Irish population or was interested in their welfare. He made his views about Ireland pretty plain in 1807 in a letter to the then Home Secretary, Lord Hawkesby, where he said, I am positively convinced that no political measure which you could adopt would alter the temperature of the people of this country. They are disaffected to the British government. They don't feel the benefits of their situation. Attempts to render it better either do not reach their mind or they are represented to them as additional injuries. And in fact, we have no strength here but our army. Surely it is incumbent upon us to adopt every means which we can to secure the position and add to the strength of our army. End quote. When Lord Liverpool and his government fell in 1827, he was briefly replaced 
by Lord Canning, who died, then Lord Goodrich. Strangely enough, the Whig politician George Lamb, later to become the Lord Melbourne, brackets dear Lord M, was appointed Chief Secretary of Ireland by the Tories. Their grand old Duke of York also died in 1827, leaving his nursery rhyme behind him to be remembered by, moving Victoria one step closer to the throne. The Tories were in desperate need of a stable leader, and the Duke of Wellington seemed ideal. Wellington brought some unique strengths to the Tory party. To quote the official historian of the Conservative Party, Lord Lexton, quote, When Wellington became Prime Minister in 1828, one of his Tory supporters, Lord Dudley, wrote, He goes to work just as if he had his fortune and his reputation still to make, just as if there had been no India, no Spain, no Waterloo, end quote. His reputation for honesty, hard work and intelligence was well known. He had significant experience in international diplomacy and brought the magic of victories as well. Wellington drove through Catholic emancipation. Many Tories were outraged, but it was hard to fight against the Duke. Wellington could point out he'd served alongside Irish Catholics. He could point to an unrivaled war record. He was deeply aware of Britain's strategic position and fully appreciated that if there wasn't reform in Ireland, then Britain's national security was at risk. He also believed lack of Catholic emancipation risked a French-style revolution, and that was key for him. Manpower and national security required Catholic emancipation in some form. This was typical of him, hard-hearted but clear-sighted. He was determined to deliver the biggest reform to the Constitution since the original settlement of 1688, at the end of the Glorious Revolution. It helped that his brother was the Lord Lieutenant of Ireland from 1822-1828, although Wellington kept him a little in the dark over the issue. He knew something had to be done, especially since the election of the nationalist Daniel O'Connell in 1828. This had put Wellington in a really difficult position. He had come into conflict with the President of the Board of Trade, William Hutchison, who had resigned. That had triggered an election in County Clare. Wellington appointed Vassie Fitzgerald as his replacement. This did require an election. Daniel O'Connell stood as a Catholic candidate. He won a huge majority, but as a Catholic, he was barred from actually taking his seat in Parliament, although he was entitled to be an MP. Wellington had to make a decision. If he barred O'Donnell, which he was legally entitled to do, he might set off an explosion. O'Donnell was a popular reformer who had created the Catholic Association with Richard Lalochiel and was keen to spout French and American revolutionary slogans. The formation of the Catholic Association caused a lot of excitement in the United States of America, where Irish Americans followed with interest. If Wellington did bar O'Donnell, he would have had the support 
of the anti-Catholic King George IV. He could also continue to count on the support of the Tory ultras, plus a lot of the English and Scottish population who were extremely anti-Catholic. He would have to have a showdown with the Whig reformers and the Irish popular movement. Plus, many Tories were pro-Catholic emancipation and many Whigs anti, so the situation was complex. He decided to take the harder option, which he believed was the best way to enhance national security, and so Catholics were granted immensely improved civil rights and access to most national offices. It required Wellington to rely on the support of members of the Whig opposition, and it bitterly split the Tory party. 173 of them voted against Wellington's Catholic Emancipation Bill. This reflected the divisions in the wider United Kingdom. The population was by no means strongly behind Catholic Emancipation. Quite the opposite. Lots of English, Welsh and Scottish people and political activists blamed the Irish for depressing wages by undercutting local workers or increasing levels of crime on the British mainland. It wasn't a case that the British working class viewed the Irish working class with solidarity. Reactions varied according to region, upbringing and temperament. Massive petitions for and against the issue flooded Parliament in the run-up to the vote, with Wellington and Sir Robert Peel being accused of treason by some constitutional clubs and lawyers. One Tory was so furious that he challenged the Duke of Wellington to a duel. Wellington accepted, which was at odds with his anti-dueling stance in the Peninsular War. They faced each other, but both deliberately missed in a practice known as deloping. This demonstrated the courage to defend honour physically, but without the fatal consequences. It was risky, since once you deloped your one-shot pistol, there was nothing to stop your opponent just shooting you. But in this case, luckily, honour was satisfied on both sides. George IV was horrified to be presented with the Catholic Emancipation Bill. He bitterly resented Wellington for doing it, referring to the Duke as King Arthur and Daniel O'Donnell as King of Ireland, then snidely remarking he had been demoted from King to merely being Dean of Windsor. Curiously, this might have increased his popularity with quite a lot of his English, Welsh and Scottish subjects. He maintained it was a breach of his coronation oath and that he was acting on principle. That's slightly hard to accept from him as we've all seen what he was like in previous episodes but I want to suggest he might actually genuinely have meant it. It is easy to forget that he was secretly married to the English Catholic Maria Fitzherbert. He loved her for various periods of his life and married her in a Catholic ceremony before he became king. They never had the marriage annulled or divorced, so it is possible to say, at least in the eyes of the Catholic Church, he was a bigamist when he married Princess Caroline. Still, the marriage wasn't legal in English law, since firstly, no British royal was allowed to marry a Catholic without renouncing their right to succession, 
and the heir to the throne wasn't allowed to marry without the king's permission, or to marry a commoner. So it fell on all three grounds. Whether or not that's right does indicate that his dislike of Catholics might have been genuinely motivated by his views around the church and monarchy rather than unrestrained anti-Catholicism. The Pope continued to view the marriage as valid and referred to George as a bigamist once he remarried and that can't have helped the Catholic Church win him over. Besides, George IV was never one to let scruples get in the way of his fun and he still had a number of mistresses. I know, every time you think he's set the bar as low as it can go, he finds a way to crank it down even more. It is no surprise that he topped the English heritage public vote for England's most useless king. With the duel over and Catholic emancipation passed, the Duke of Wellington felt that reform had gone more than far enough. He had only led the reform through Parliament because failure to do so would have potentially led to disorder. Wellington prized stability above all else. It was his cardinal virtue. It represented everything the French Revolution and Napoleon weren't. If Catholic voting rights and the biggest change to the Constitution since 1688 were the price of stability, then he would pay the bill. He was resolutely against any suggestion of reforming the English voting franchise or the Corn Laws. It was at this stage in his life that his house was stoned by outraged members of the public. He installed iron shutters, giving rise to his nickname, the Iron Duke. It had nothing to do with his tough military reputation and was an insult. With this background, you can see why the Duchess of Kent and Sir John Conroy, aligning themselves and Victoria with the Whig reformers, was seen as somewhat dangerous. They were essentially allying with the people who were chipping away at the power structures Victoria would acquire as queen. The Tories had almost split over Catholic emancipation, so for the future potential queen to be aligned with the reformists was seen as dangerously partisan. The Kensington system seemed to heighten the tension. Why were the Duchess of Kent and Sir John Conroy keeping the child Victoria from being seen and interacting with Tory grandees or the royal family? By aligning themselves with reformers, they were also aligning themselves directly against the king. That was hugely risky. George IV was by this stage drug addicted, unhealthy, a spendthrift and a bad king. But suppose he had pulled himself together. What if he had experienced a midlife crisis that caused him to lose weight, stop drinking and whoring and take an interest in real power politics? It wasn't impossible, extremely unlikely, but people can and do unexpectedly change their lives. Even as a run-down wreck of a man, George IV still had royal powers. We know the Duchess of Kent and Conroy were doing it to get a solid grip on Victoria, and they clearly calculated the establishment was hostile to them anyway. Yet this was foolish in many ways, since it turned control of Victoria into an all-or-nothing gamble. 
when George IV had met the seven-year-old Victoria in 1826, he had found her delightful. He was also rather taken with her older half-sister, Theodora. Conroy nearly had kittens when rumours began that George IV might marry Theodora. She was a Protestant princess after all. Conroy was already annoyed at Theodora, since she had made Victoria harder to control. So he decided she had to go. But there was no way in hell he was going to let her marry the king. God forbid she managed to drag him back to sobriety and had a child with him. It would shatter all the hard work Conroy and the Duchess of Kent had put into positioning Victoria as their pawn for the throne. Nope. Conroy was adamant. She had to go, and quickly. She was swiftly married off to a penniless German prince. This reduced her to a powerless outsider. But luckily, the marriage seemed to be a happy one. She and Victoria would continue to write to each other. For those of you following the recent Victoria TV series, I have no idea why they portray Theodora as a villain in later life. She and Victoria were very close, and there's no hint of her causing problems in Victoria's marriage to Albert. With Victoria now in line behind George IV and the Duke of Clarence for the throne, Conroy made his next power play. He had control over Princess Sophia, including her finances, and crucially, as she was the king's sister, he easily persuaded her to lobby the king for a title of some kind for him. The king agreed to make him a knight commander of the Hanoverian order. The Irish soldier of fortune was now Sir John Conroy, controller of the fortune of Princess Sophia, knight and abusive holder of Victoria. At the same time, Louise Lazen became Baroness Lazen. Conroy and the Duchess had appointed her Victoria's governess as she seemed easy to control. It was to be a miscalculation cost them ultimate victory. Join me next time as we cover the Whigs and the Great Reform Act as the clock ticks down towards Victoria's ascension to the throne. If you've enjoyed today's episode, please tell people about the show. I've recently hit the staggering 100,000 downloads, which is fantastic, but I'm sure that word should spread of the age of Victoria, so I'd be delighted if you'd all help. If you want to give me some feedback or just have a chat or ask any questions, you can email me at ageofvictoriapodcast at gmail.com or on Facebook, on the Facebook page or in the group. Just search for Age of Victoria. If you want more of an informal social chat or a bit of banter, follow me on Twitter at Age of Victoria. Take care. And bye for now.